Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My mom always had a little bit of liquor in the house. I mean, they never touched it, but a little bit of liquor in the house in case somebody came over and wanted, you know, something. So, you know, that so many people have above the refrigerator, you know, cabinet. So in that little cabinet above the refrigerator, she had a bunch of things. And one day I was out in the barn doing chores and I went into the house. I poured about an inch out of every bottle that was up there, all into the same, you know, eyeball glass and stood over the sink. It smelled disgusting. So I pinched my nose and I drank it all down. Wow. And that was the start of my drinking. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. 
Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. Thank you so much for joining me. On the Heal blog this week, I'm sharing the five key steps to heal your inner child. If you are struggling with getting triggered by events that bring up past wounding, healing your inner child is one of the most important things you will ever do for yourself. The link to this blog is in the show notes. My guest this week is Dr. Constance Scharf, and we are talking about how childhood trauma leads us to addiction. Constance grew up in a home where she felt lonely, isolated and lost. Her mother worked long hours and she was abandoning and her father sexually abused her. Constance has no memory of a huge chunk of her childhood from the start to the end of that abuse because she has blocked it out and her tiny nervous system would have felt so completely overwhelmed she just did not want to feel anymore. And so at 11 years of age, she started drinking. Somehow, she understood that alcohol would stop her need to feel. By the time she was in college, Constance was drinking two litres of hard liquor a day. At that point, she believed she didn't have long to live, and her friends told her she would not make it through her 20s. Constance started drinking because she was scared of her father, But when her father died suddenly, she realised that she couldn't stop. Dr. Constance Scharf is the founder of the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. She is an author and a speaker. And since becoming sober 25 years ago, she is passionate about sharing her knowledge around addiction and recovery. Please join me now for Constance's story. Dr. Constance Scharf, you are the founder of the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. You're an internationally recognised speaker and author, primarily on the topics of addiction, recovery and mental health. Your personal story is so important to share because it clearly shows the spiral that trauma sends us on. Can you tell us firstly a little bit about what you remember about growing up within your family, your very early relationships with your mum, dad, siblings? Sure. So I just want to start off with I am Jewish and my parents, when I was about five, maybe six, decided to be pig farmers. So, yeah, so not for those of you don't know, Jews don't eat pork. So for us to be pig farmers was really alienating. So we lived very far out in the country. You know, you don't pigs don't smell so nice. You don't put that right in the center of town. And so I grew up in the country and sort of alienated, you know, from any peers that I had when I was in school, because I was the only kid who was Jewish. And also from the Jewish kids is like, what, what pig farmers? Like, what is that? You know, it's not a thing. So very isolated, very alienated from, you know, go. My father was extremely abusive and he started sexually abusing me when I was seven. And I really have almost no memory of 
my life from age seven to 10 when he was abusing me. So I remember the first instance of sexual assault and I cut out about two thirds of the way through that and don't come back to myself for three years. I have some very vague recollections between the ages of seven and 10. We had a, in, in the fourth grade, so I would have been 10, we built a, a model of the Mission San Juan Batista. I lived in California, the Mission San Juan Batista. We built a model out of sugar cubes. And I remember sort of vaguely really liking gluing all the sugar cubes together to make this model. I mean, things like that, this sort of very vague, very odd memories that you would expect from like a three or five-year-old, not from someone who was 10. And then I remember the day the abuse ended. My father had a girlfriend. I, I problematized that because she was really a prostitute. I don't know exactly what was paid for and what was not. He said girlfriend, she said pro, who knows. But my mother had was not at the house. She had either, I don't know if she had moved out at that point or if she had gone to work. She worked quite far away from the home. Anyway, I was going to school and I was washing my sheets on like a Tuesday morning or whatever it was when this woman showed up. And, you know, both being an adult and a prostitute, she realized what was going on immediately. And she looked me right in the eyes and she said, he'll never touch you again. And that's where my memory comes back. Right. And so that was my early, you know, recollections. I have a younger brother. I was very unkind to him growing up. I loved him very much, but, you know, you, you know, it, the, the, the dad hits the mom, the mom hits the kid, the kid kicks, kicks the dog sort of deal. Mm -hmm. My, you know, if my brother didn't comply to my demands quickly enough, one of the things I also had, I had a, a tremendous amount of chores far more than I, I mean, I believe that kids should have responsibilities in the home, but I had a lot of chores. And so if my brother didn't do my chores quickly enough, you know, he'd get it from me. So yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of violence in the household, a lot of turmoil and a lot of isolation. There was nowhere for me to go. Yeah. I can just feel that it's just everything, isn't it? There's not, there's not even a piece of light in there anywhere. No. And when I would try to get away, so I remember being very little and I mean, little, like first grade little, and we had these elderly neighbors and they were quite a walk away. I mean, a long walk for, you know, a kid that small. And I remember going over, I'd like to go over to their house, mostly because I was lonely. My mom worked, you know, far away. My dad would be out on the farm somewhere and you know, I'd come home from school and I'd just be lonely and I'd go over to their house and, you know, she'd make me, it was an elderly couple and she'd make me a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup, you know, and, and he chewed tobacco and I was always fascinated because he had a spit can on his dashboard and he, they were all like, a, they were like a hundred years old. I mean, they were very elderly already at that point, but, you know, they seemed, you know, for, you know, Jurassic to me, you know, being six or whatever I was and he could spit from the driver's seat into the spit can and not miss and I was just fascinated by that, right? And But my mother was horrified, first of all, that I would, you know, run away to these people's house. And also, she was embarrassed. She was like, I don't like that you go over there and eat because we have food, you know? And I was like, she didn't, this old lady didn't mind giving me a can of soup. And I was hungry. Like, you weren't there, mm -hmm. you know? And so that kind of thing. So I wasn't allowed to do that anymore, right? I, I couldn't go over there. So very isolated, even when I tried to, to get away. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about this woman who turned up this one day who said this will never happen to you again. I mean, do you know anything about what actually happened with that woman? Like what did she do? No, so it was in it. Well, so she was my dad's girlfriend. Like I said, I don't know if he was paying her or not. I suspect he was, (laughs) but she was a prostitute and she worked at a truck stop. And my, before my parents divorced, my father, about nine months before, my mother told me this as an adult, about nine months before, my father asked for an open marriage. And she was, this is, you know, this would be like 1982, 81, 82. And so she, he asked for an open marriage and she wanted to try to save the marriage. And so she said she agreed to it. So what happened is my mother would go to work and my father's girlfriends would then come over to the house because she was gone all day. We had a farm. So my dad was at the farm. I mean, that his job was at the farm. So there was this carousel of, I don't know, three or four different women, but she, this woman was his favorite. He really, he really did like her. And she was my hero. I mean, she's a prostitute. She, she was absolutely my hero. Not only did she stop this abuse, you know, I think if you asked my mom, she would say she didn't know what was going on. I just don't understand how it could go on for so many years and her not. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this woman, I, I have no idea what she said, but that, that was it. I mean, he never, never touched me again. And, you know, occasionally I would stay home from school, you know, and she would, you know, allow that first of all. And uh, she would use her food stamps to buy candy for me. I remember she bought Reese's Pieces for me and we watched Luke and Laura's wedding on General Hospital. And I thought she was magic. I mean, my mom would never buy me Reese's Pieces with, I mean, we didn't have food stamps, but she's never going to use her food stamps to buy Reese's Pieces for some, you know, some other person's kid and then watch soap operas. I mean, you know, this lady was magic. She stopped my dad from abusing me and whatever. I would imagine I don't know what happened to her, but I would imagine she's probably not alive because um, she was a prostitute and a heroin addict in the early 1980s. So that that her getting through the AIDS epidemic is probably probably didn't happen. Would be my would be my guess. But she, you know, it's funny because when you think about who's the hero of your story, and I'm like, oh, mine's a prostitute, you know, yeah. and, a, and a heroin a heroin addict, you know, prostitute, you know, and the the love of her life, the man that she loved, was in prison. You know, I mean, it was, she hit every, you know, great, I mean, I'm a writer, so every great character aspect that you could have, you know, for sort of being, you know, the the dark, the dark woman, but her, she, you know, they talk about, you know, the heart, the prostitute with the heart of gold, but she was, she was a good woman who just, that's the way she, you supported her children and her habit. Yeah. And that's just where she ended up, right? I mean, it's just what people end up having to do in their life. But it's just amazing that in amongst all of that chaos, this is this is the magical kind of almost like a saviour. You have these these memories of just sitting with her and watching, you know, television. Well, she she would stand up to my dad. I mean, that was the thing that that, you know, on sort of an interpersonal level. My mom was not capable of doing that. My dad mm. would just dominate her and for whatever reason either she was more courageous or my dad was more meek I don't know but she really just was like yes no this is what we're doing like just commanded him and he didn't fight it Mm. whereas with my mother he did in fact where they divorced was 
my my father I don't was not in any way abusive to my mom that I saw until one day this was about nine months after the open marriage thing he he beat her almost to the point of needing to be hospitalized I mean he beat her very badly and she picked up and left she was like that's over you know but he didn't do that with this girlfriend and I have no idea why Mm. and and so what happened when your mom left did you go with your mom no so my mother Mm -hmm. took my brother and moved in with her mother and she said to me that she came back the next day I I did not see the beating I heard him abuse her in another room she came out very bloodied left took my brother and left it wasn't uncommon for her to just take my brother because he was two and a half years younger. And especially when he was very little, my father just wouldn't pay attention to him. And so anytime she went shopping or whatever, she'd leave me at home because I could, you know, sort of fend for myself. And then she would take my brother because he was young enough that he couldn't be left unattended. But in this case, she took him, moved to, and moved in with her mother. She came back the next day to get clothes and whatever. And she she said to me and even at the time it didn't track she said to me I have to leave you here because I can't get you and your brother to school and still get to work I was like "Mm, well the bus does right I mean it was a little country town where we where we were you know went to school and I was like "Mm, I think the schools are only like three blocks apart I didn't I didn't get it Mm -hmm. Um, it felt like And to be fair to my mother, this was not her experience, but to me, it felt like I was abandoned. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt very abandoned. And so I stayed with him. She had a contract. She had to finish it out. It was probably, I don't know, four months, three months, whatever it was. But in that time, she had already had a new boyfriend who she later married. And they went up to Oregon from California. They went up to Oregon and bought a house. And one day I was told, and you are moving. And that's what happened. And I just, we moved up in with this guy that I'd met, I don't know, twice or something into this little rusted out single wide 20 year old trailer. The ceiling was covered in nicotine stains. It was orange because the people who, you know, my, my mother didn't smoke. And so, you know, just, it was what they could afford, but it was gross you know, to, to move and and with no, literally no warning, you know, just, Oh, we're moving. And you're, you know, coming with us. I don't feel like my mother really wanted me to come, but I had, they said that I had a choice. My brother was too young. He was going with my mom, but I had a choice. If I wanted to stay with my dad or go with my mom, I actually would have preferred to stay with my dad despite everything, but I didn't, want my brother to be alone I didn't want to separate from him so I went with my mom and then just I didn't but I didn't know it was to or like I didn't realize like we were moving far yeah you know yeah what age were you I was not quite 11 I turned 11 right after we moved to Oregon about a month Mm. later so by by the age of 11 your life has just been a living nightmare really I mean you've been pretty much completely completely I mean abandoned just abused like everything right and when I you know when we moved to Oregon my mom is not a drinker I'll be sober 25 years at the end of July excuse me at the end of June so about six weeks from now and 
So, you know, I've been sober a long time, but I started drinking when I was 11. So my mom always had a little bit of liquor in the house. I mean, they never touched it, but a little bit of liquor in the house in case somebody came over and wanted, you know, something. So, you know, that so many people have above the refrigerator, you know, cabinet. So in that little cabinet above the refrigerator, she had a bunch of things. And one day I was out in the barn doing chores and I went into the house. I poured about an inch out of every bottle that was up there all into the same, you know, highball glass and stood over the sink. It smelled disgusting. So I pinched my nose and I drank it all down. Wow. And that was the start of my drinking. I went back to, you know, rinsed out the glass. So nothing, you know, smelled, put everything away. I went back out to the barn, you know, over the world spinning. And I was like, this is what I want for the rest of my life. I mean, I just knew I was like, because it took away the feelings. Yeah. I innately knew that alcohol would take away those feelings. And so fortunately I was in Oregon. So I, very hard to drink there. You couldn't, this is, you know, back in the eighties, state run liquor stores. I lived 30 minutes out of town on a farm. So, you know, getting into town was hard. So I didn't drink much, but every time I drank, I drank alcoholically. I mean, I drank as much as I could until it was gone, you know. Wow. So I, I wonder, what do you think that decision was at that moment? Had you seen this playing out? Have you seen people drinking? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, certainly my father's family drank. I don't think any of them are alcoholic. I mean, not to my observation, you know, even though I work in, in mental health research, I don't love clinical definitions. I like working definitions better. And so for me, addiction is are you having negative, significant and frequent negative consequences from your drinking? Not one time I drank too much and, you know, crashed my car and nobody was injured. And then I learned my lesson. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about, but significant, continual, you know, upgrading, you know, negative consequences. And do I lack control of the decision-making, right? So when I'm drinking, I just can't, from picking up, right? I, I just, if there's some there, I just cannot stop myself from taking more once it's, it's in me. So those are the things that I, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, if those, if that's true for you, then you probably have, you know, a a problem. So yeah, that's, that's where I, I, you know, I I think, uh, you know, addiction come is. And so what it did for me, so I don't see my family I don't see anyone in my family drinking at that level. Mm. You know, I mean, my grandparents, who I lived with for a while as an adult by choice, you know, they had two drinks, good sized drinks, strong drinks, but they had two drinks when they watched the news and then Jeopardy. And then they had a glass of wine, possibly two with dinner every day, but they never had any, you know, there were never consequences to that. So is that addiction to me? No. So I never saw to my not, I mean, to my knowledge, certainly not in my family, I didn't see people who had a drinking problem. I did see, you know, the, my dad's girlfriend with the heroin addiction. I would have loved to use heroin when I was a kid, but I lived out in the country and it wasn't available. It's not like now, if I was a youth now, I'd just be dead because, you know, heroin, fentanyl, all the, you know, other opioids, like, I, cause I use too much, right. I want all the things. And so I would have, I would have died 
but back then it wasn't available. So my dad's girlfriend, you know, she, I never saw her shoot heroin in front of me. I just knew. And we had a neighbor, really wealthy guy. He had racehorses and, you know, he came over and he had a barn that had a living quarters in it and he'd get drunk and, you know, pass out in his RV. But I never saw consequences, right? He was married to the same woman. You know, he was never running around on her. He had plenty of money, had all these racehorses, you know, like that's what I'm seeing. So I'm like, I didn't see any, I didn't see any Mm. consequences. I didn't, but there was something in me that knew that alcohol would take away this pain. And I wanted to feel numb. I wanted to feel nothing, you know? I drank for oblivion as they stay in 12-step programs. I wanted to absolutely negate my feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And so this starts at 11. How does it play out then over your teens and early 20s? So I, um, you know, drank when I could, but periodically as a teenager, then I went to college and I went to college in Northern New York and they have these magical people at college who are 21. They call them seniors. Right. And so I had someone to buy for me. Right. I was on a scholarship. So I, you know, didn't have money problems. I wasn't having debt problems. Like so many people have now I was on scholarship. And so, you know, I would buy, if you would buy two, you could keep one and that worked for me. And I was essentially drunk all through college just all through college. And when I, you know, I'm still though a member of four national honor societies. I had Latin honors, you know, when I graduated, I had departmental honors. I did an honors thesis. I traveled. I just happened to be good at school and I played to my strengths. I picked coursework that I was good at. So but, you know, I was drunk in finals and, you know, I showed up, I showed up for a Spanish class an hour late. It's an hour class. I showed up an hour late once. Cause I, after three quarters of the way through the semester, I just got the time wrong. Like, you know, cause I was loaded all the time. When I walked across the stage and they called my name, it never occurred to me that you were training for a job in college. College was just the continuation. In my family was the continuation of your education. And that after college, you could do whatever you wanted after you had a bachelor's degree. And only my grandmother and one one of my father's cousin, a woman, did not have a degree. Everybody in my family, they just, everybody has degrees, you know, and some of them, several. So it was just, you went to college. But when I, we crossed the state, I crossed the stage. I was so proud of myself because I graduated, right? And, you know, all the honors and the things. And then 
they called the next person's name and I went, oh my God, I'm, I'm unemployed. But I knew that my alcoholism was so bad at that point that I probably wouldn't live that long. And so I didn't think about getting a career. I just thought about what are some sort of jobs that I could do in order to sort of survive until my liver and kidneys gave out. And when I was 20, that was, you know, I graduated, I was 21. By the time I was 22, you could actually see my liver and kidneys. They were so swollen. And so I knew I was Mm. on my way out. My friends, I worked at summer camps. I love summer camp. I worked at summer camps and my friends from camp had sort of gentleman's bet going on, wondering how long I would live. And I had one friend who thought I would make it past 25. One. And I knew they were right. You know, I was like, yeah, I I, I don't have very long. And what happened is my, I, I was terrified of my father and drinking made me not terrified of him. Well, he died of a massive heart attack one day, just dropped dead. And that was the turning point for me because my drinking over that week got much worse, much worse. And I was drinking at that point, two liters or more of hard liquor a day. And I realized I had a moment of clarity and I realized that he wasn't the reason that I drank because he was gone. I thought I drank because he terrified me and I realized he's gone, but I'm drinking more. So now alcohol, whether that's the start of the problem is irrelevant. Now alcohol is the problem. And there was something in me. I just didn't want him to win. And I was like, well, I'm going to get sober. Wow. And no matter what it took, I was like, he doesn't get to win. And to me, if I died, he won. And so I started the process of, you know, considering sobriety and then actually, you know, trying to get the support that I needed to get sober. That's incredible, isn't it? It's in the end, I think it is. That's the people that really pull through. You have got that something in you, haven't you, that you just want to win. You want to beat something that's yeah, I, I just was so angry. I was like, you've taken so much from me. Mm. You don't get to take my life on top of it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I had that luxury. He's gone. Right. He can't hurt me anymore. Right. So I had that luxury of, you know, being the only one in the race, but still having the motivation, you know, of him. Mm-hmm. And I met some really you know, I think there's two people, two things. I mean, I think, yeah, you have to have some motivation that, you know, they say in 12-step programs, are you willing to, you know, go to any lengths, do this no matter what, you know? And and I think that there's some truth to that, that tenacity. I also, I met a couple of people who were just really gentle with me. They saw how traumatized I was. And I was willing, I think the second part is, I was willing to do what I was told. Because the one thing I was very clear on is I had one way of being, and that way of being was to drink. That I had one solution. And these people, really mentors of mine, they said to me, you know, well, I don't know what it's going to look like for you, but there is recovery from this. 
you know, which was pretty bold because the truth is back in the 90s, there was not good treatment for trauma, decent treatment for, for addiction. But what happened is every time I stopped drinking, the trauma came back up. And I had just overwhelming trauma symptoms and I would have to tamp those down with alcohol because I couldn't find good trauma treatment didn't really exist. Now there's some really effective trauma treatment, but that's how I got into this is because so fast forward, I'm, you know, and we can come back if you want, but fast forward, I was, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years sober and the maybe more like six, seven, eight years sober. Anyway, the veterans were starting to come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And not only were they not, I went to a, a, a mutual aid group that met on Friday nights near the VA hospital and these veterans would come over. That's how I interacted with them. And we got each other, even though the circumstances of my trauma and theirs, the details were very different. The expression of it was very similar. We had similar symptoms. So we were very much kindred spirits. and they weren't getting sober. And one who I really just adored, young, young man, 23 years old, Marine, devastating leg injury. All he wanted his whole life was to be a Marine, could not serve any longer because of this leg injury and constant pain. He killed himself, you know, with a a wife and an infant child. Mm. And I was in grad school at the time. And I thought, man, This is, I mean, I've been watching this for years. I was suicidal a lot, not quite to the point where I was going to do something about it because then dad wins, but just miserable with these trauma symptoms. And these, you know, veterans are not, are not making it. And I thought there has to be something better. There has to be better treatment. So I switched everything I was doing in in grad school and started looking at the intersection of addiction and trauma. And that's where I've been for ever since for the last 20 years now. So did you have an understanding that it was trauma? Like before that point, did you understand it was the trauma that was causing you to drink? You did. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my dear friend, Marcel M was one of those mentors and he was from New Orleans he was a best-selling novelist and a jazz pianist, and also at one point well over 500 pounds. And I remember I used to go to these mutual aid groups, and he and I would pick picked the ones that were held at restaurants, and would just plow through food. Mm. And I would see him, and and the the one of Saturday nights where that wasn't at a restaurant, we all went to a restaurant afterwards, right? But I would see him, you know, three, four times a week at these, you know, restaurants. And I was like, I get you. I didn't talk to him for months. I was like, I get you. And he got me. And and then when he found out that, you know, I was a writer and he was so accomplished, he really just encouraged me. But he said to me, he picked me up one day to take me to a, a meeting and he had a he lived in Bel Air. It's really windy streets, and we were we were in Bel Air. And I maybe I had gone to his house. But anyways, I got into his car and we were driving through Bel Air, and he had a convertible. And he looked at me and he said, "Recovery is possible." And I tried to jump out of the car, and fortunately I had my seatbelt on. And he grabbed me, <laughs> but I, I'm out. I am out. Like that was 
like he saw me and I knew, like I had enough understanding. I was like, yes, you know. And so that, I mean, I, I really knew. I am of, on the professional side, I am of the opinion that addiction and trauma aren't really separate diagnoses, you know, that I certainly drink in, you know, service of not feeling my feelings that come out of, you know, post-traumatic stress. That doesn't mean that everyone who develops addiction has diagnosable trauma, post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder, however you want to say it. But I know I've worked with thousands of people. And I know one person who genuinely says, I have no idea how I became an addict. He's like, I had a great life, great upbringing, all the advantages. We weren't poor, like all the best schools. And I just partied myself into this. I genuinely know one person. So, I mean, everything has an anomaly, right? Mm. But I, I don't know anyone else who's like, yeah, no, some things really went bad. And what they'll say to me is, you know, whatever it is, whether it's drugs or it's alcohol or it's, you know, some behavior, whether it's sex or food or gambling, they'll all say, it helps me to manage my feelings, right? And mm-hmm. so that is a, that's a trauma. That's a response to trauma. So I really look at it. So I, yeah, I definitely knew. I definitely knew that trauma was the root of, of my drinking. Yeah. So how long did it take you to get sober? So it took me about two and a half years. Although in that period, my relapses were fairly infrequent and much less drink. I was not drinking two liters. You know, I was drinking three beers, you know, or, a, you know, half a bottle of wine or something like that, a little bit of liquor. I'd get drunk now and again, but I was really, I wanted to, I wanted to be sober. I really wanted to be sober, but the trauma symptoms were so bad, you know, especially flashbacks and body memories were so bad. I just didn't know how else to deal with them. And then what happened is about two and a half years, well, about two years in, I just gave up. I was like, I'm not going to go to these mutual aid groups. I just, I can't get it. I I couldn't be completely abstinent. I just couldn't do it. And this friend, Marcel, he kept calling me. Nobody else called me. Once I left, nobody, you know, kept track of me, but he would call me every, you know, I don't know, two weeks, month, whatever. He'd say, hey, how you doing? I'd be like, oh, well, you know, kind of crappy, but, you know, hanging on. And he'd say, you know, there's help. And if you want my support. I was like, thanks, you know, and then he called me and he had cancer mm-hmm. and he had shot heroin once, developed hepatitis from that. And, you know, this back in the day, now there's, there's a cure for this, not back then. So because it's 25 years ago. So he developed hepatitis. It, then he developed very aggressive liver cancer from diagnosis to death was five months. And he said to me, he said, I've got cancer. It's very bad. I want to see you, but you can't come to my house unless you're sober. And I just loved him. And I thought, you know, he's funny. He was funny. He's the only guy I ever knew who gained weight with a cancer diagnosis because he had been on a very, very restrictive diet to lose weight. He gained like a hundred pounds in that five months. I mean, he just was, you know, because that's how we deal with things, right? He was like, oh, I can eat white bread and sugar now because it didn't matter, right? And He wasn't going to die from obesity at that point. So, you know, I thought I loved him so much. I said, you know, I can, 
just white knuckle it. I can be sober longer than he's going to live. And I think it was the last time I saw him, but one of the last times I saw him, he said to me, I, I came in, I was, I had driven down from my job in the, in the San Fernando Valley and I'd driven over to his house. I went to his house almost every day. I'd run errands for him. You know, he said, can you get some Gatorade? I literally filled my trunk with Gatorade. Like I bought like 40 bottles of Gatorade or something ridiculous. He died like three days later. I mean, it just, you know, whatever he wanted, like I'd, I'd help him. And I was coming down from my job in the Valley and the traffic was bad. And I came in and I'm like, the traffic and the da, 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 and everything is bad and you know the sun's not as bright as it should be and I'm too hot or too cold or whatever it was that I was complaining about and finally after about two or three minutes he pulled off his oxygen mask and he goes well I'm dying and he let it fall and I was like oh my god it's not all about you shut up and ask him I said what do you want what what can I do he was very very bad at that point I was like what can I do I said what do you want and he said I want to see you sober for a hundred days and he died, I think I had 102 days, 101, 102 days when he died. So at that point, I don't know what happened, but I was sort of struck sober. And I just didn't drink from then on, from when he died. Wow. You know, I just, you know, it was just sort of a gift that I got from him and from that relationship. And he was fantastic. You know, it was so funny. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, who's also sober a long time, who she was his part-time assistant. And so we both adored him. And, oh, he was a curmudgeon, a misanthrope and a massage. I mean, he hated everybody, you know, and grumpy all the time and whatever. And I said to her, I said, you know, it's funny because he was, I don't know, 54-ish somewhere between 53, 55 when he died. Well, I'm 50 and she's 52. And he'd been sober five or six years when he passed. And, uh, you know, I'm 50 and sober, you know, you know, in the next six weeks, 25 years. Like I thought he was so old, you know, cause you know, my parents age, right. He was so old and he was sober forever, you know, and now I'm like, oh yeah, he wasn't really that old and he wasn't sober that long. Yeah. You know, I mean, you get a different, you get a very different perspective, yeah. you know, but he, you know, he just, you know, graced me with his encouragement. That's the difference when you talk about my youth and you talk about my, especially my early recovery, but my life now is connection. In the research, the, the curative or the opposite of addiction is not really abstinence. The curative is connection. I was isolated. And I didn't have the support that I needed to recover. So I did the thing that I could do, which was drink. You know, that was available to me. Now I'd be a statistic, right? Because there was no heroin available, no opioids, no fentanyl, not, none of that was available. I, I, it, now I'd just be dead, mm. you know? And I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of that. But, you know, what helped me to get better was connection. You know, like what's the, if you, if you do a mutual aid or a 12 step group or something like that, you know, what's the magic of it? You know, they'll tell you, well, it's your spiritual. I'm like, it's you guys. Yeah. It's the people. Right. And if you say, well, God works through people, you know, I, I mean, that's fine. But I'm like, if I, I went to, somebody invited me out my very first new year. I, so my initial sobriety date, it's not my sobriety date now. My initial sobriety date was November 11th, 1995. Now it's June 29th, 1998. So that was the period. But I was 
invited to a New Year's Eve party with three sober people. And they'd all been sober like over 10 years, like a while. And so we they decided that they wanted, I don't know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. And they decided they wanted root beer floats, but they didn't have any root beer at the house. So I said, well, I'll just go get the root beer. This is long, it was 1995, so it's before, cell, like, you know, people didn't have cell phones and all that stuff. Yeah. So I went to the, I went to the, you know, pharmacy to pick up and they were like when I got back they were like you came back they were like we made the worst mistake like you don't send someone who has you know who's been clean for six or eight weeks out to the pharmacy on New Year's Eve to get root beer and I was like oh I mean I just it didn't occur to me but it didn't occur to me to go out because I was part of what they were doing Mm -hmm. right there was a connection there you know, it was like when, when Marcel said, yeah, I'm sick. I was like, okay, what can I do for you? Because there was a connection there. You know, I went to, he took me out to dinner once this very fancy sushi restaurant. And he was like, you should write, you know, and he's so, so supportive of me. He's like, you should write because you're a writer and that's what writers do. You know? And I said, I hated, I hated the, the group meetings that we went to. And I was very, very, you know, very much a a princess. And I said, you know, I have to drive all the way from the valley. It's very far for me to come. I I want a meeting that has valet parking. He goes, okay, that's the meeting I go to on Friday nights. And sure enough, the meeting had valet parking. I mean, talk about self-absorbed and, you know, all the things, right? But this is how much he cared about me. He's like, okay, if that's the prerequisite for your participation, then yeah, let's do that. Mm. You know? you know, just always, people have always put out a hand for me, whether it was, you know, my dad's girlfriend, or, you know, if you have a community to which you belong, even various minority and marginalized community, LGBTQ, there is so much good, wonderful research and great resources for people who belong to that, belong to that community, including through um, community centers and, and, and so forth. So, if you have those ties, use them because there are wonderful resources there. So I always throughout my life had people who stood up for me and combining that with good therapy when it finally became available, absolutely changed my life. We are going to leave this story here for now, but please do join me next week for the second part of Constance's story, where she shares her journey from alcoholism to recovery and what it took for her to finally get sober. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at My Big Love Project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.